Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan DeFrancesco. I'm the Deputy Editor of Cellside Technology. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Anthony Malikian. But before I let him introduce myself, first I'd just like to introduce our very special guest, Mr. Bill Murphy, the Chief Technology Officer at Blackstone and the first reoccurring guest of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. Good to be back. Bill was our first guest way back on episode 22. He's a friend of Waters. You've probably seen him at one of our conferences speaking on our panels. He was profiled way back in 2014, I believe it was. Um, and obviously a very knowledgeable, uh, smart guy in the industry. And we're, we're happy to have him back on the podcast. Um, yeah, so well, Tony, you have, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you now talk that, now. Now that I'm allowed to talk. <laughs> yeah. You guys are like an um, old married couple. Well, you know, we've been doing this now for 60, and, you know, it's just, it's starting, you know, it's getting old now, but <laughs> so we'll on trying to spice it up by having uh, Bill along with us. All right, let's stop talking about spicing up our relationship, putting a lot of images into our listeners' heads that we don't need to, but, uh, you know, the reason why we like Bill is because he's got strong opinions, and he doesn't back off of them, and last time we had him on here, we had the big debate about business and technology, and you can listen to episode 22 if you want to hear some of Bill's takes on that, but... We wanted to bring you in today because, you know, a topic that you've spoken on and a topic that's important to the entire industry, definitely, certainly C-level uh, technology folks, is this idea of technical debt and the issues around it. So I think before we go any further, to start, maybe for those people that aren't as familiar, I'm sure a lot of people are, but how about you give us your definition, your explanation of technical debt? Sure. So I've been doing a lot of thinking, and, and last time we talked about um, the business and technology and how they're kind of disparate at times and technologists need to understand more about the business in order to make the right choices and but need to be given given access to, to in order to do that so as I've been um, working to try to figure out you know other things that are holding innovation back I keep running head-on into the fact that even when the technology and the business side, you know, that divide doesn't exist from an understanding perspective. Um, I was actually finding this other divide, right? And this divide was around their understanding of the mountain of work that the technology team needed to do just to keep up with the current state. Um, and, you know, technical debt is something that I don't know if you guys have ever heard it before we were talking about it. Um, but, it, here yeah, there, but, it, yeah. but it, it's not something that um, outside of the pure technologist is talked about much. Um, and it really refers to the fact that we all, you know, there's decisions made that we look back and we wish they were made differently, right? Um, and in technology that happens sometimes. Um, also, there's, there's changes in the landscape that you can't um, foresee. You know, if you build a you build a house that's two bedrooms and then you wind up having triplets, like that's a problem, right? It doesn't necessarily mean your two bedroom house was designed poorly, it just means you, you know, the circumstance changed and you need to figure out a different, um, a different place to live. So, um, so technical debt is really just the, uh, all of those different decisions and all the technology that was built up from either bad decisions or changing, changing uh, circumstances and that um, eventually uh, catches up to you because if you uh, if you have to deal with a system that's not working a hundred percent the way you want you have to pay the price and that's typically in maintenance costs and support costs and people that have to just do a lot just to keep it running um, and that builds up over time much like debt builds up like if you you know the first time you don't even zero credit card debt and you want something you're like oh cool I'll just spend an additional hundred dollars no problem um, 
and then you know you do that again the next month and again the next month and you know three years from now you can't you can barely pay the minimum on the credit card right um um, same, similar to housing debt and so on. So um, the debt analogy, I think, has been very effective to try to explain that there's this mountain of work that continues to grow um, and unless it's addressed. Um, and unfortunately, some of the addressing it isn't that sexy because it's not um, necessarily getting you new features and functionality. Sometimes you can do f- new features at the same time that you fix some of the debt. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that's not always the case, and and uh, so repaying it's hard because it's not you know you don't get that hit of dopamine of like oh cool I get to buy something new or I get a new feature or I get um, something that's going to immediately impact my business. What you are doing is you're unlevering yourself when you repay it, such that the next time you want something new, it's easier to afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so as as I was voicing that uh, this concept with people, I noticed that there was a clear misunderstanding between the CFOs and the COOs and the CEOs of the world and the technologists of the world. And, you know, so I'm just trying to figure out ways to, to create a dialogue and get that message out a little bit more uh, broadly. What does that dialogue start with? Because I would imagine that you first have to create a blueprint as to what a firm's technical debt currently is. I guess, what does that process start with? I think that's the, that is really the first step is, you know, what do we have? today and explain it well. And that's what the, the technology community, I don't think, has done. Um, they haven't, we haven't come up with something universal that can, that can just fall off the shelf and be given as, you know, taken as, as, a, as a perfect uh, measure of any technical debt in an or- organization. So I don't have that answer, but I do know that starting the conversation and however you want to measure it, is okay, just as long as you're measuring it and talking about it is like a, a good first step towards understanding how to repay it. Um, I would almost imagine that like any firm like on a technology end especially that you would say, okay, well, we ha- we're using this OMS, we're using this CMS, we have this portfolio management system, um, we're getting data from you know XYZ vendors here, and you kind of just go down the list but that's always kind of built in and you always kind of know what those are and always kind of evolving who you're using or changing out from how i guess then does technical debt and technical debt management uh differ from just your basic you know we're gonna go with our upgrades we're gonna get a new system here or whatever have you well i think that it's a core reason to get a new system but it's not necessarily you know i guess a good way to think about this is like so let's say for uh, a trading business, they start out, they're going to trade equities, so they buy a, an equity-based, you know, uh, or focused package, right? And then, oh, well, I want to get into a certain type of debt, so they buy a second package to do that. And it was separate people, so they talked themselves into doing that really quickly, and we don't have to integrate it, and we're going to run them separate. Mm-hmm. So now, midway through, they decide to do, like, convertible instruments, which sort of are a little bit of both, and they can't do it. So it impedes their business because they have two systems that don't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they buy a third system or they try to jerry-rig some system together to to get it going. And obviously the business breathing down the neck of of the technologist to get them something in order to do the trading. Mm -hmm. So now at some point along the line, because you have three systems, because they are not, they don't function well together, you're just, your, your tech team is struggling because they're just, worried about passing information between the three systems instead of thinking about how they can make each of the three better Mm. so that they can trade more effectively. Um, And then, you know, 
at that point, maybe you, you, some firms will step back and say, okay, I got to overhaul my trading completely and I got to buy a new one, but that's an expensive proposition. Whereas, you know, when they bought that first equity system, um, the right conversation is probably, okay, what are we doing for the future? Um, will we ever need to trade debt? How can I, you know, how can I think about it differently so that I can set myself up? And then when they went to trade debt, they probably should have said, okay, well, let me take the pain now of integrating it in such a way that it won't be painful later. Mm-hmm. And like, but, but most people may have to make short-term trade-offs, um, especially during those stressful periods. And that's when you incur these, uh, these, this debt by, by making decisions that aren't good in the long term. Is that, is that, do you think, the biggest culprit of technical debt? And where does uh, acquisitions and bringing on smaller firms and the platforms that they have, how does that Well, I mean, acquisitions is like, uh, is obvious because you had no role in the decision, right? You couldn't have made the decision the right way if you wanted to because you didn't control the company. So even if the decision was, was, was excellent at both companies, um, it's just different. So now you've got a, you know, let's say, two companies one has java based technology and the other one has microsoft.net based technology just by definition okay now you got now you got troubles yeah. because how are you going to get from one to the other T- they typically wind up running siloed separate siloed stacks for a very very long period of time and then they wonder why they didn't get the synergies from the deal <laughs> um, because they can't get rid of either um, or they can't you know rationalize any of the tech spend because they have to spend twice mm-hmm. um, so that's a, it's a hard pill, pill to swallow, and I don't think people are accounting for the potential of swallowing the pill. Like, they haven't put in the deal model, okay, what would we do if we really wanted to get to a pristine technology um, setup? And that cost is often large, but if you pay that, that cost now, it saves you in the future. So it's just a, uh, it's not necessarily saying do everything pristine all the time. It's not saying pay it immediately upon acquisition. It's just saying, you know, make sure that you're making it with your eyes wide open and trying to measure the cost of really doing it the right way. Yeah, I was going to ask because, you know, there's, like you talk about, there's a way you can sacrifice when you're building those initial platforms and saying, oh, instead of just buying a completely different trading platform and installing it, let's make sure they're integrated and whatnot. On the acquisition end, is there anything you can do on the front end? Because like you said, there's just different schools of thought a lot of times that you're bringing there together. Sure. What's the best way to avoid you know, technical debt that way? My view is that ripping the Band-Aid off at the time of acquisition is always better. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it's amazing the, you know, between the political nervousness of the people who are coming together, um, in addition to, you know, the people who did the deal, if it if there's an immediately a technology problem because you ripped that Band-Aid off, you know, there's lots of risk for the individual people, or at least perceived risk, um, typically. So, um, but the quicker you do it, the better off you are because the longer you run it, you're just like adding to the. We call it draining the swamp, right? Uh, sometimes oh, I've, heard, I've heard that before. Right, it's like, you know, so like they they they're just adding to the swamp um, when they start using it and letting people run it. Um, it's also a form of control, right? So when there's disparate systems, people sometimes like to keep keep them separate because um, it's a way it's a way to create uh, control for other factions so I think by right-sizing the technology quickly you could actually avoid some political problems too but it's a tough choice to make it takes leadership um, to to basically say go do it sure let me ask you this so looking at technical debt and obviously in a mature organization something's factored into 
I guess a two-part question here, but one is technical debt something that you talk about when you're entering into a new agreement with a vendor, with third party, or you're just taking on new software, whatever have you. Is that something that is actively talked about, do you think, throughout the industry? And then two, does the more, as cloud technologies become more ubiquitous, will that make handling technical debt easier because upgrades are a little bit easier, it's easier to switch out of a platform now, you're not quite as locked in as you were maybe in the past. So I definitely think that the the cloud is definitely gonna help, right? Because, um, actually I think you're probably just as locked in, but the the companies do the upgrades for you. So, you know, Salesforce upgrades, I just sit there and it just works, right? So, um, so that helps because there's just less work on the upgrade side. Um, and more of the modern systems are API first, where they provide ways for the systems to talk to each other. They, they deprecate things in a way such that they're still usable. So it's easier to control technical debt with the more modern technologies, which tend to be the SaaS offerings. So I think all of that is positive. I don't think that people make decisions enough taking into account the, the technical debt that any decision is going to uh, create. I think a lot of times people want to do best of breed, mm -hmm. right? And just like they don't think about the work that goes in to tying all the systems together when they buy 10 systems instead of one, they also don't think about the, the work that goes into tying the 11th system or the 12th system or the 15th system because you're go, you're, you're, your environment is not one, you know, forever. It's mm -hmm. changing every day. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, you know, that's not never factored into the ROI of buying a new software. If people want the new software, they typically say, well, you know, how much is it going to cost? Just the license fee. It's so easy, right? <laughs> yeah. And that that's never the case. And if you look at the fully, the total cost of ownership, you really should be factoring in what's the additional um, support costs for many years, not just, you know, what's it going to cost me tomorrow to put the software in. Go ahead. Where does, uh, to that point, where does sunsetting systems fall into technical debt and how firms should kind of approach it when, you know, I've heard you speak before about finding the right time of when to pull the plug on a system and how to go about it. How does that factor into the whole technical debt? Yeah, the, so the, the sooner you can shut stuff off that's barely used or used ineffectively, the less debt you're going to have, right? Um, so the, so that, I think that I highly encourage bold as it relates to that. Once again, it takes leadership and it's hard to convince every single person, especially at these big corporations, because there's always a constituency somewhere that likes a system the way it is and people don't like change. I think we talked about that last time. So um, so shutting stuff off, in the, in the event of a merger, um, it's probably a little bit easier because you typically have another system that does exactly the same thing and how can you migrate? But even in just regular course of business, Looking at how you can shut stuff off, I think, is always a good thing. Um, simplify down um, and being uh, being simple, but still being able to do all the complex use cases is probably what we should all be striving for. I, I see a future for, for Bill here. You know, Murph Dog migrations maybe goes in, cuts a bunch of systems that don't need to be there. You know, I, I a little consulting business. Let's not start with them. Let's, let's, let's start a nickname. This is not a sanctioned nickname. Let me ask you this. So when you're looking at, it, it, it would seem simple enough to be able to get that buy-in of saying, listen, we're using all this manpower for to replace code, to you know try and upgrade patch and do all these kind of different things. And it's cost us a lot of manpower. It's cost us a lot of, we're, we're having to buy like separate like little tools to help with this yeah, kind of stuff. Totally. 
why maybe then is technical debt get out of control? Why is that such a tough sell maybe for the COO, CFO, CEO, or is there anything there maybe to, to streamline that conversation? Sure, I think that it is, talking about it is hard for the technologists, right? Because sometimes it was their fault. It was their <laughs> bad decision, yeah. right? And, and I know, I mean, I look at decisions I made three years ago, I was like, God, I wish we had changed that, right? But you have to, you got to own up to it. You got to say, let's let's go back. Let's fix it now. If we fix it now, we'll be better off for the future. We don't have to do all the other gymnastics. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is, it's a prognostication of the value. So you don't you don't really most of the time you can't point very specifically. It's about how fast your team is going to run in the future. Um, if you're, it's like wearing a backpack, right? If you go for a run and you're not wearing any, uh, you're not carrying anything, you can run faster than if you're carrying a backpack with 10 pounds or 20 pounds or 50 pounds in it, right? So you're just, you're lightening the backpack. It doesn't necessarily, it's not easy still for, for technologists to basically go in and say, we're gonna run you know, 10 minute miles, eight minute miles, six minute miles, based upon how heavy the backpack is because they're putting themselves out there too. So I think it's, it's all about trying to create that dialogue um, in a way where people understand it and and generally, people haven't done a good job, myself included, in terms of making sure everybody understands what you know what those metrics are. Because there's no metric in the world today that is like you know we can't just say dollars on a balance sheet or yeah. you know dollars in revenue or or or, or EBITDA or whatever. Um, to we're kind of coming up with it on the fly, um, and you know creating that language would be really helpful for everybody. Is it fair to say it almost sounds like, you know, it, it, rather than working with a hatchet, you're working with a scalpel, and sometimes it's tough to be able to prove worth when you're just kind of making, like, small, like, little incisions, correcting, like, small, little things yeah, totally. here and there. Well, that's when the decisions typically are easy or finally get made is when the, the trading system is unusable and let's replace it. Okay, everybody can buy in, and they spend, you know, ten times as much. What you really want to be doing is, you know, every month, be contributing a little bit towards the future, mm -hmm. right? And like pay that debt off over time in small increments. Um, but those things are also the easiest to cut when someone's breathing down your neck. Mm -hmm. So it mm -hmm. takes like a certain amount of, it's once again leadership to basically say, no, we can't cut it because we're gonna pay for it later. But if, or if we do cut it, we just have to account for it. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is, you know, you, obviously you've been, how long has Blackstone, have you been there with? with uh, five point? and a half years. Five and a half years. So. Good, good run there. You obviously had a time when you were new there. Is it easier for somebody with a lot of experience with, you know, you've built up some equity. So for you to say, listen, we're going to make these little things that don't have the ROI necessarily to be able to make those changes. Or do you think it's easier for somebody coming in as CIO, CTO to be able to say technical debt, we have to really look at this and get more of a green light on that? Or do you think it's I think it, it, I think there's, bet, there's there's pluses and minuses on both sides. Like mm -hmm. certainly, once you have equity, you can have deeper conversations with people that you have personal relationships with. When, but however, when you're coming in, you also, um, you know, there's less defensiveness about any of the things that was there because you didn't do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you can uh, you could take an outsider's view of the world and quantify it. And depending upon the situation that you're coming into, they may be very more much more open to hear the full story um, at that time of, of entry than they are you know five or six years because ultimately 
you know, if you made a mistake, no one likes to, to, to look at mistakes that were collectively made on their watch. Yeah. Um, so it's just, uh, it depends, um, I would say. But I would say, you know, just once again, be open, try to itemize as much as you can, and then have dialogues between both sides with as much detail as possible. And I think that just leads to better decision making, even if it means taking on more debt in the short term, just doing it knowingly. And just one last question then for me, but um, does that dialogue, I mean, for you, is it the CTO, um, the CEO, CFO, COO, or is there, how do you kind of figure out who needs to be in that room to make that decision? Or is that something that's just naturally built into the IT process and just the whole budgetary planning committee? Yeah, I think it's different for every company. Yeah. And like, I don't think that they're, uh, I, I think typically in, in the world, um, it's whoever the the CTO reports to should certainly be involved, right? Yeah. And you know, sometimes that's the CEO, sometimes COO, sometimes CFO. Um, I think the CFO should always be involved, probably because it you know it really affects um, uh, expense levels, and and they need to be involved and, and understand it. And then in any given system, the key stakeholders who are deriving the value from that system, um, you know, if it's a trading system and the head trader is the one who cares about how good that functionality is to support their business, they should probably be well-versed in... You can't upset the rainmaker, you know? Right, so. right. I mean, no, no, but like they, they need to understand why it costs money. So I think just more knowledge spread more uh, widely is always good. Okay. Sure, no, and this is certainly a topic I'm sure we'll hear or, you know, see more of your opinions on, so definitely keep an eye out uh, for that and one that definitely touches on the industry. But... Uh, a topic that doesn't necessarily touch on the industry, but is of interest to all of us is, well, two of us, is the NBA uh, and the uh, upcoming NBA playoffs. Tumulus? What are you trying to say? Tumultuous. Tumultuous. Tumultuous time. Tumultuous time right now in the NBA. As we're recording this, uh, Kevin Durant is out till at least the playoffs, it appears. Uh, you know, not it was would have been bigger news until the KD injury, but also Kyle Lowry of the Toronto Raptors also out for maybe I think till the playoffs. Uh, and then I know Bill, as you're a Celtics fan, right? Yep. As Celtics fan, big win for the Celts. The yeah, Seas, last night. Last night. Yep. Over the Cavs, showing that maybe the East isn't won yet. So, Bill, you're a big NBA fan now. You know, with you know what 20 games or so left. What's your uh, perspective on how the the playoffs for the rest of the season is going to shake. By the way, out. We're, we're doing this on March second, so well, things greatly change. You know. Yeah. That, you know. Yeah. Well. Uh, you know. I'm sure we'll be wrong anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so it's probably best. Maybe we shouldn't tell anybody. Maybe we'll just happen to be right. Yeah. The. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, the the Duran injury is uh, certainly throws a lot of um, surprise in. I don't like the whole everybody's getting signing with all the contenders after they get waived. Uh, flurry that's happening right now. It just feels feels strange that everybody gets to uh, create a new team t with 20 games left. Um, <laughs> so, so I think that's a little frustrating. And uh, I felt like we finally had a read on it a little bit. The Warriors were were really chugging along, but then you obviously had the second tier, the Spurs and the and the Rockets, and then Cleveland waiting for everybody. Um, and now Cleveland seems to restocked with a bunch of guys who were really good and you know 2010 right. um and we'll see if they can do it do well now but um 
but I was yeah I was happy to see the the Celtics win because I think it would be very fat it would be great to have a good second round in the East and not just have a Cavs coronation well, to go see who's gonna who's gonna meet him in the West. Oh well, yeah, that's the way I look at it. Is sure you have the Golden Golden State Warriors, you know, kind of the the Death Star, the big you know they because of a lot of the guys. I think a lot of people have turned on Draymond. I know this is like I. I my kids love Golden State, and I'm pulling for Golden State. But I, I pulled more for them last year because I loved watching them. I think basketball played that way is is amazing to watch and and the most fun. So you know, Durant going to them was was kind of a negative for me because um, I just felt like they were the even though that they went 73 and nine last year, they were still like the underdog guys that you could kind of I, I don't know. I would say to me it was it was like a bunch of. There was an element of the Splash Brothers like a few years ago where it was like, oh wow, Curry and uh, Curry and Clay are getting hot. Like this is awesome. Let's put it on. This is exciting to watch. I think though they once they won the championship and then they made the run. I think that went out the window. And I don't know. I'm I'm very. I don't like LeBron, but I really don't like this Warriors team. I don't like Kevin Durant. <sighs> I think he's a crybaby. I think wow. he's I think he's a baby when it comes to the media. Um, I think that he was coddled. For his entire professional career in Oklahoma City, which has probably the softest media in the NBA, and then he comes to Golden State, and he's wondering why people are angry that he went to the best team in the league. I, I he's he's very frustrating. I love Russell Westbrook. I love the fact that he just goes at him. I love the potential for the OKC Thunder, the OKC uh, Golden State matchup. That's why I just, the West is so much more exciting. You look at you know you have the Clippers, which are an interesting you know an interesting team, although flawed. You have the Jazz, who have probably the best player that's not talked about enough in Gordon Hayward. Then the Rockets, you know, I mean, are, are could be potentially the MVP this they year. They could be really good too, because the Lou Williams thing is uh, is underreported. I right. think they got him from the Lakers, and they're going to be really a wild card. And, yeah, and they could shoot. They could shoot eighty threes in a game, maybe uh, <laughs> threes and dunks. That's it. We'll see. Threes, threes and dunks. Threes and dunks. Uh, and then the Spurs are the Spurs. I mean, everybody knows Popovich and whatnot. And then, you know, you have the whole Thunder, Russell Westbrook. I don't think that team's going to make a run, but it's just exciting. So there's a lot of exciting teams. And then you look at the Eastern Conference, the way the playoffs are set up. I mean, the Pacers, snooze, right? Like the Bulls, don't care. Atlanta Hawks. You might have a good second round because you got Washington, Toronto, Boston, and, and right. Cleveland. And I think those they're clearly the four best teams. Sure. So we'll have a good – hopefully have a good second round and, and – uh, I think you're being a little hard on Durant, though, because like, I don't know. Did you listen to the the, the Simmons interview with I, him? I listened to I it, it was, and uh, I hated him more because of it. Really? <laughs> well, let's, uh, make I your point. I thought it was interesting that he. Uh, I thought he made very good points about the fact that it's his life, and I think you know it kind of speaks to the a more broad. Um, everybody's judging everybody else all the time um, about you know their decisions, and you know he just wanted to go play someplace else. I just felt like it was it was very human humanizing um we think about these guys as you know just you know impervious to to criticism because they're you know they have to play in front of twenty five thousand people every day but um so i felt for him from there i just i like watching the basketball better when he when before they had him that's 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 my reason for liking the warriors more last year i just think it was more um more engaging a game let me ask you this because my big problem a big problem that i have with the nba especially takes i used to watch in the 90s you know and but that was like the dog days man you know, the 90s. For me, like, at least, there were a lot of good teams. Like, you never really had – obviously, the Bulls were dominant, you know, in the eight, But, you know, you felt like there was a little bit more openness to the league. But right now what we're seeing is, you know, just these super te teams. Yeah. And so, you know, 
it's LeBron and whoever he decides is going to be on his team. Well, that's going to be one team that will be in the final four, basically. And then, you know, now it's, you know, Golden State with Curry came out of nowhere. But then now you have Durant, so now you know that they're – I think that the playoffs at least became a little bit more interesting with the Durant injury. I think that it's better for the – if he doesn't come back, to me, I'm going to find much more interest in that uh, than that. I have no feelings toward Durant one way or the other, really. But it's just a matter of just – I, I just don't like the fact that it's preordained that you know who at least two or three teams are going to definitely be in the final four, and then there's going to be one maybe surprise that's that fair. can sneak in. There's and not as much. There's not as much surprise. I whereas if you look but at the still, NHL, it's wide open. Who would have thought you have you, you've got a five nine guy who's second in the league league in scoring though? That's mm-hmm. pretty amazing, Isaiah Thomas and stuff. So I think strange things can still happen. But I hear you. It's definitely not as wide open as as hockey. Um, I just like to be able to watch. And you watch. think that basketball like today to be is better to, than the 90s? 100%. Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, playing-wise, I mean, you look at, like, the Pat Riley Knicks teams, they would just, you know, you come down the lane, you're going to hit the ground. You might score, but we're going to foul you. It's, it's It was way more brutal. The hand-checking fouls have changed. The game is a lot smoother and a lot more fun to watch yes. now than it was in the 90s. And the two, early 2000s was probably like the worst part, right? right. Like it really escalated. Post, I mean, you have the Larry Jordan, Brown Detroit you know, Pistons where winning. They, yeah. they slowed down. And, you know, who wants to watch games 85 to 83 when, you know, 110 to 105? Well, I mean, if you're going to watch basketball where scoring doesn't matter, then you might as well have it be 110 <laughs> to whatever. So. I don't think we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to convince you. So, <laughs> yeah. you know. But, uh, yeah, it's, I think. The, the playoffs will be interesting. So before we wrap things up, you know, always got to make predictions. What what's how do you see things playing out? I know you know your heart's with the Celtics, but do you think there's any chance they can come out of the East? I I don't think so. I think Cleveland's like with these pickups, especially if they get Bogut, which is not official yet. I don't think. But I haven't um, seen, no, I haven't seen anything. But uh, the I think they're going to have too much um, if, if Kevin Love comes back, especially. But. Um, the West, I think, is now much more open. I would say it's it's Houston, Houston, San Antonio, and Golden State are going to be very close unless Durant comes back. And I think if if Durant really comes back at full steam, I still think Golden State's gonna gonna take it. So, yeah, I think it. I think we're, it's just trending towards. It's an easy pick, but I think it's trending towards the Cavs and the Warriors again in the finals. Who do you have if those two face each other? For the three, the I third really time. want the Warriors to win, so I'm just going to pick them because I because th- I can't possibly root against them, and uh, I think there's it's pretty br- prettier ba- brand of basketball. Why do we want to watch just one guy pound the ball at the top of the circle and then put his head down and try to get to the rim? It's like that's no fun. Because I want to see Kevin Durant pout at the post game <laughs> in the media, put his head down it's and cry. That's that, why I want to see, yeah. Because I'm, I'm a pessimist. You want the shot for it as much as you want. Yeah, yeah I want the, yeah, exactly. You must have really loved the Super Bowl, uh, you know, trophy ceremony then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I want some money on the Super Bowl, so that's all that matters to me. Well, listen, Bill, we appreciate you coming in. As always, great insight. Um, you know, so so thanks for making the trip down to uh, to come chat with us. And we'll make it a yearly affair. Next year around this time, you'll have you in right before the playoffs again. Sounds good. <laughs> thanks, guys. Yeah, so thanks so much, and uh, be sure to tune back in next Thursday.